Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a super strong passion for making other people healthy in this world, obviously making yourself healthier, but uh, people that have a calling to make people healthier in this world outside of themselves. That could be one person, that could be a million people, that could be a billion people, but uh, we're here to help people. And uh, along those lines, I'm really enthused and excited to have Karin Van Zant on the show today. So Karin is the VP and Executive Director for Life Services over at CareSource Management Group, otherwise known as CareSource. Now, a lot of people have heard of CareSource. They're doing some great things. Karin has done some great things, but I'm not going to steal her thunder. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate having the time to talk a little bit about the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can imagine, you know, so you're doing some great work, doing some great things and, and focus in some powerful areas in a, in a very interesting time, uh, probably in history. But maybe you can teleport us back and tell us a little bit about your story. You know, what led you to become the person you are today? Just love to hear a little bit about your origin story. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm actually a small town girl. I grew up in Enon, Ohio, um, very, very small bedroom community um, that mostly um, holds lots of uh, military families that are stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and that's exactly how my family got there. Both my mom and my dad's families were military families and both stationed at the base um, and, uh, and and grew up in, in this small town life. Um uh, blue, blue collar family. My mom uh, is an LPN and a nurse. So kind of healthcare has always been a part of, of our family. Uh, my mom, um, uh, worked for Children's Hospital for a period of time, but spent the majority of her, um, work, um, with the Community Blood Center, um, and, and, and blood uh, tissue services. And so, um, healthcare was always something that, um, you know, filled our days, our dinner conversations. Um, my parents divorced when I was young, and my dad went into the military and got to travel all over the world. Um, and so I, I often say that I was um, one of those kids that actually had a, a positive impact um, on my parents divorcing. I ended up with two great step-parents, um, and I had have roots. I still live in the same school district that I graduated high school from. Um, married my high school sweetheart. I went to college at Wright State just in our backyard. Um, and yet I had a dad who lived all over the world and I had an opportunity, um, to travel. Um, and so both of those things kind of really impacted my worldview. Um, mm. um, I took a missions trip, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, um, out to Four Corners, New Mexico. Um, and I think that that for me was really the first time that I ever saw poverty, um, in, in a tangible way outside of my community. Uh, people living in cardboard boxes, no running water, um, no electricity on the reservations for some of the families that were there. And and it, that kind of, it was that trip, that three-week uh, missions trip that really kind of embedded in me um, that I was going to help people. Um, but I really thought that I was going to help people through becoming a doctor. Um, I went to, to college um, in an athletic training program in the mid-90s and wanted to uh, become an orthopedic surgeon and, and work um, in medicine. Um, but my junior year in uh, college, um, my husband and I had an unplanned pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And um, as most college students in the mid-90s didn't have health insurance and ended up um, on Medicaid uh, for the pregnancy. And, and through a series of unfortunate events and a very difficult pregnancy, um, you know, lost my campus job, decided to take a year off from school, 
um, ended up moving in with my in-laws and, and um, you know, on cash assistance and Medicaid and, and food stamps and, and those kinds of government subsidy programs uh, and really um, saw a part of my own community that I never really knew existed. Um, first of all, I was a 4.0 um, college student and I found myself having to negotiate food stamp benefits with a caseworker. Um, mm. And I lost that negotiation a couple of times. <laughs> like, um, that, that was the first time in my life that I hadn't really been able to talk my way through any kind of situation. Mm. Um, and my paperwork got lost multiple times. Um, and so um, luckily, um, uh, had a healthy baby boy. Um, he's 24 now and um, just graduated from the University of Cincinnati. Um, but that year of living on government subsidies and through that pregnancy and, and kind of the identity crisis of not going to med school and now what am I going to do with my life, um, uh, you know, and with this infant um, mm-hmm. really was um, a, a shock to my system. Um, probably m- the most important part of that transition from a career perspective was the amount of time that I spent in waiting rooms um, to recertify my food stamps and to, um, you know, update information on Medicaid and, and to enroll in WIC benefits after I had um, my son um, and, and the variety of social service organizations that were there in the mid-90s to help and that are still there today to help low-income individuals, um, I spent an incredible amount of time in waiting rooms. Um, And, you know, the extrovert that I am, I would just strike up conversations with people that were sitting next to me. If we were going to hang out here for a couple hours, might as well get to know who was sitting next to me. And um, the stark contrast between how I was experiencing um, this part of my life, um, you know, yes, I was not happy about moving in with my in-laws, but I had in-laws who would do anything to help me and my husband out. And I had parents that would do anything to help us out. And I never knew a day hungry and I never do it, knew a day homeless. That wasn't the story of a lot of the other women that I met during this year in those waiting rooms. Um, and and it, that sat with me. Um, and when I started, when I decided to go back to school after taking a year off, I ended up going back in, into social work. Um, and the cocky 23-year-old in me thought, I will just work on this poverty thing for a couple of years, clean that mess up, and then move on to medicine. <laughs> um, and here I am 25 years later, still um, working amongst and with low-income individuals um, mm-hmm. uh, to better understand the complex systems um, that they are forced to navigate um, mm-hmm. and, and to try and be a voice, not just for them, but to really create space so that they can bring their voice to the table as lived experience in first person uh, to change the policies um, that we have in place today, both from a, a social sector as well as now in the healthcare sector. Um, I joined CareSource five years ago, but I started contracting with CareSource um, 10 years ago. Um, I, I eventually formed my own nonprofit um, to help communities better understand the complexities of living subsidized and living as low income um, uh, during the recession. And uh, CareSource found um, my organization. There, we're, we're headquartered here in Dayton, and I was 30 minutes away in Springfield, Ohio. And, um, and so really started working with the leadership and the, the management here to better understand um, uh, low-income individuals, and then eventually um, they recruited me to come and join the company. And so I oversee um, at, at the company or enterprise level um, our social determinants of health strategy. 
mm. and how um, we can uh, create uh, benefits and, and advocate for policy change and, and really treat the whole person by looking at both the socioeconomic indicators that are happening in their life as well as the clinical and behavioral health aspects um, that were required or mandated to do from a, a Medicaid and Medicare perspective. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, well, Karin, uh, powerful story, you know, true, true hero's journey. And I'm sure um, our listeners appreciate your story that has led you to have your current perspective and focus and calling, right? And, and I'm sure you appreciate what you, you've gone through, right, to, to see it, you know, to focus on people's needs, their social determinants of health, to understand poverty and be able to action off of these elements. Um, there's so many different facets. Um, I'm not even going to begin to start to name them. You're the expert, right? But I'd love to hear um, along those lines uh, about the present. You know, tell me a little bit about tell us tell us about what you're finding. What you how you what's your what's the mental model that you would like listeners to take away from when they hear about poverty or or uh, alleviating poverty or maybe social determinants of health, but or, or just said another way, tell me about what has you fixated these days, and just love to hear mm-hmm. about your current passions and, and what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, I tell people, I feel like, um, I got the gold ticket out of the chocolate bar. Um, when mm-hmm. I was given an opportunity to come here, um, I was, I was fully embraced by the board, um, to take a clean sheet of paper and bring together and start to develop a model of social care, um, mm-hmm. that would complement the clinical and behavioral care that um, our company is, has been known for. We've been in Ohio for 32 years, really helped pave the way for managed care um, in Ohio, um, and have always gone above and beyond for our members as a nonprofit plan to um, kind of stretch the boundaries of what um, Medicaid um, allows a managed care organization to do. Um, but we didn't necessarily do that in a formal way. Um, it was very dependent on the, the knowledge of the caseworker or the community partner in one community versus thinking about things at scale. And so CareSource right now has almost 2 million members um, as a part of our plans in five different states. Um, and so, you know, what works well in Cleveland might not work great in Albany, Georgia. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. thinking about how we start to formalize um, our processes and our benefits and our partnerships and our programs um, across very diverse landscape um, and, and, and diverse political uh, systems within the states. You know, Medicaid is delivered at the state level and, and, and Medicare is at the federal level. So just kind of thinking even through how each state um, wants to deliver their Medicare our Medicaid program has been really important um, mm. uh, when we start thinking about how we work um, with members, um, not just from a, a clinical and behavioral health perspective, but you know, I, I like to tell people my department starts to think about all the things that happen outside of a doctor's office, a mm. pharmacy, or a clinic. Um, and so, you know, as, as I work a lot with with new folks um, that are coming into understanding social determinants of health, you know, I ask them two key questions. If today mm. you didn't know where you were going to lay your head at night, might that have an impact on your overall outlook of life mm. and, and your own um, physical and, and behavioral health? And, and if you didn't have a paycheck coming next week, 
um, how might that also impact your decision-making abilities um, or the access to different networks that you rely on week to week in order to um, sustain your overall family and success, right? Mm -hmm. And so we started in 2015 uh, um, looking at workforce development. We were a year in um, to the ACA of uh, um, the Medicaid expansion. Uh, the governor here in Ohio, uh, Governor Kasich, uh, fully expanded Medicaid as soon as um, the ACA went into effect. And um, CareSource went from being a mostly child-focused um, program, pregnant moms, and working with um, age-blind and disabled population to this huge influx of adults who had had no access to insurance overnight. Mm -hmm. And um, you think about some of the things that come um, with um, adults that may be seasonally employed, um, may not have um, high wages, um, but some wages um, may be very transient because, um, you know, they're able to afford rent this month, but not that month, right? And so these mm -hmm. were some of the things that um, we started to recognize in a plan um, and we did focus groups in 2015 to ask members, you know, if we were to do something in addition to healthcare um, that would have a significant impact on your life, what would that be? And they said, help me get a job. <laughs> and mm. um, we thought, well, that's not what we do. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> sector of our community. Um, yet when we, you know, what I know about the, that, those other sectors is they're sometimes very locally based. Um, and, you know, working with landlords is a very local um, relationship, um, mm -hmm. and yet how we put in place partnerships and strategies that can have an impact on housing is also significantly important to overall health outcomes. Wow. So my uh, over the five years of being here, we've um, we've got three kind of primary focus areas. Um, we have an evolving fourth area, and then our fifth bucket is always going to be around advocacy and policy change. Mm -hmm. um, is that um, you know there are eighty means-tested federal programs that work with low-income Americans. Um, and as we survey our members, our members are interacting sometimes with upwards to 10 to 12 of those different programs on a monthly basis. And many of those programs have a um, pay for participation, not pay for outcome um, vision. Mm. And so as long as you participate in a program, both the program and the participant will receive benefits. But if you actually are successful and uh, and are able to come off of the program, um, you may lose part of your safety net as well as the organization may lose part of their financial model. Um, mm -hmm. And so we continue to work on the policy change. Our three big buckets are workforce developments, where we got started in 2015. We have a program um, called Job Connect um, mm -hmm. that really leverages um, our clinical case management platform, um, and we have life coaches that help people navigate the soci socioeconomic resources that they might need in order to move into long-term and full-time employment. Um, and then we created a whole network of employers that we could work with um, and advocate a in a different way with HR departments to see our members as an asset to a company and not as a burden to a community. Um, and that's a really important aspect is I think a lot of times um, in these 80 programs that are targeted towards low-income people, I think that well-intentioned individuals want to clean up the poor person, make, give them a haircut and give them a shower and a good suit, and then put them in an employer, but not recognize that they may not have all of the 
um, things that they need around them to maintain that employment long term, but then also not do the work that it takes to change the mindset of the employer to -hmm. see this person not as a charity case, but as a productive employee and a contributing citizen. And Mm -hmm. so we spend a lot of time with our employers to help them better understand um, that our members have potential and, and we're putting support structures in place and these, these people are working really, really hard and they're ha- sometimes having to work harder at maintaining their support structures than others, um, but they are an asset. They're an asset in our community and they're an asset to the employer. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that has been huge. Um, our data coming out of this, we've helped a couple of thousand people over the last few years um, to move into long-term employment with an 85% retention rate. Um, and we've been able to replicate this program into from Ohio to Indiana and into Georgia. So it's our, our p- first program that has been able to work across multiple markets in very different um, Medicaid environments. Mm. Um, two years ago, then we started to, to look at housing. Um, again, b- big issue. It's really hard to maintain employment or overall health outcomes if you don't have a house. Um, just mm-hmm. bottom line. If you don't know where you're sleeping at night, it's really hard to have good health. Um, and so we have a phenomenal housing director who's doing all kinds of innovative work um, in, in working with housing partners. We're building with partnerships with developers housing in Ohio this year. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're investing in housing and affordable housing, and we're leveraging um, our relationship with the Federal Home Loan Bank to provide gap funding to affordable housing projects. So it's really exciting work. Um, we are working with um, a HUD-funded um, uh, housing authority as their partner, both for health and workforce development. And we have our first members um, moving into home ownership this year after three years of work uh, through our partners at Habitat. And so, again, it's the stitching together of the social fabric of, of socioeconomic or social service organizations that have always been there. Um, mm. We're not creating anything new, but how we can help our members navigate those systems the same way we help them navigate the complex, complex clinical systems um, has been very valuable for us as a company. And then our, mm. our third big bucket of work is um, around nutrition and food access and, and, and addressing food deserts and, um, that and in fact, the food deserts continue to pop up more and more in our urban areas. Um, lots of rural parts of our states are more than thirty miles away from a grocery store, um, and so really kind of thinking about um, the logistics around how most people go get their groceries. All, although even that's being disrupted, right? You know, shipped and and Uber Foods and and even Grubhub, they're all like disrupting how all of us like get food these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how do we leverage those kinds of partnerships and that kind of technology to think through uh, a different way of having a brick and mortar uh, retail location? How might we leverage this disruptiveness to help address issues of food deserts and food swamps? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Lots of, lots to unpack there. I mean, a couple of pieces that, that I'd love to, you know, uh, maybe you can, you know, for our listeners out there, what should be the current um, mental model? You know, I've got like three main questions. I'll start with the housing piece. Um, housing, yeah. what, who should pay for housing for, for, uh, I know that's kind of controversial a little bit, but, um, or I guess said another way, you know, there's this new model where maybe payers and providers get together and then they, they carve out, you know, different innovative models where they do fund like different communities for, for mm-hmm. uh, those that need homes. Um, but are, are any promising economic models that you are seeing there for housing? A follow up question to that is I have a lot of questions about the, the, the food desert. You know, how do you, how do you, mm-hmm. you know, help solve for that? But on the housing piece, what, what should be our, 
a, a mindset or a, a framework, a mental framework we have regarding, you know, yeah. who pays for, who could pay yeah. for this. You know. you know, it's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, I teach at, a, at two universities um, uh, in intro human services and social work. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the big the big housing boom for our country wasn't necessarily a government housing boom. It was a private housing boom. It was as corporations continued to move across the country and locate, they knew they needed to have places for workers to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see a resurgence of this is where, um, it's no, we're no longer looking to only the government to figure out this affordable housing or this housing crisis that we've gotten ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's going to have to be a, a good partnership between public and private entities coming together, mm-hmm. recognizing that the health and safety of our communities depends on having a solid infrastructure for people to be able to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that payers and hospitals as employers and as corporations have a role to play in that um, is um, how we invest back in the footprint of where we where our employees live and where um, where our companies reside. All em- em- employers um, have uh, a role to play in this. Um, is is really important, and I think there's an opportunity there. Um, the other part, from the kind of the clinical perspective, is you know housing has a fairly tangible, large ROI. Um, you know we we can see what's happening um, with the you know the term the frequent flyers. Mm-hmm. Almost every time um, a health system is talking about that, or we're looking at it from a claims perspective, um, chronic homelessness is almost always there, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know what it costs us when chronic homelessness is there. How do we start to change the policy, the regulation, and bring the right providers together? Because I don't believe that that payers or hospitals should take over housing. I just think we have to figure out where we fit within the housing continuum, right? Um, and where where do our resources contribute in a different way, more upstream way than where our resources right now are contributing in on on the backside of you know the the cost utilization um, part of it that we know chronic homelessness is is a, a key determining factor of. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's very complex. I also think that, you know, we could get really, uh, it could be really interesting to see some philanthropists step up and, and use kind of the paper for performance or the social innovation um, uh, configuration of funding mm-hmm. um, to think about how we front capital to create housing and then see what the ROI is on the other side of it um, mm-hmm. as an investment as well. So Got I think it. that you know, some of the, the things that are tr- they're trying to get started in, in you know, the opportunity zones and, and things like that, um, it, it's just going to take a couple of, of groups, though, to jump in and decide right. that it doesn't all have to be pr- you know, proven and figured out for them to, do, to, to get momentum on that. And so right. um, I'm very lucky that I work in a company that has allowed me to test some things out without having the full, you know, peer-reviewed lit, you know, um, yeah. documentation of, uh, oh, this is what we should be doing, right? Right. Right. No, I love the, I love what you're doing. I love the model. And it, it, it's, it's great that, you know, you're, you're kind of like, you know, forming that algebraic model of, of, you know, solving for, you know, social determinants of health and, you know, fancy term, right. But it's just, everyone's got a yeah. need, whether it's you're just got poverty. or right. Whether you're yeah. the richest man in the world or you're, you're, you're someone that's homeless. And, uh, yeah. Um, this is great on the, on the, on the food desert piece, 30 miles away. So it sounds like the 30 miles obviously is like, a 
kind of like your, your, your standard, if you're 30 miles away from a grocery store or, or, or food, you know, um, how do you, how, how, what's your current mental model for solving for that? I mean, is it a matter of these innovative models, like the, the meal deliveries or meal deliveries and getting kind of like most, uh, micro grocery stores, um, you know, something set up, you know, so it can yeah. be, I mean, how do you think about that or how should we think about that? Yeah. So, you know, on the food access piece, um, one, I think it's going to take lots of different venues, um, you know, depending on if you're rural or urban, um, your age, your sophistication with technology, your access to technology. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to, they're going to need to be lots, I think, multiple different options to choose from, um, if we really want to tackle, um, and the, the food insecurity issues that we, mm-hmm. uh, that we have in, in a lot of our urban cities and, um, and in rural. And you think about, you know, being 30 miles away from a grocery store and no transportation, um, mm-hmm. or no gas money for the transportation you have. Um, you know, that, that that's a limiting factor. Um, mm-hmm. even if you have SNAP benefits, you know, food stamps, and you have SNAP benefits, if you can't physically get to a store, um, or get your groceries home once you get to a store, that's a limiting factor. And so I think that as we think right. through um, the food access or food desert issues, um, I think the average American thinks that it's a food issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a food issue. We supply other countries with food. Right. Um, we have right. plenty enough food. We waste a lot of food, right? It's not a food issue. It is a logistics issue. Um, mm-hmm. So whether the logistics are cash or money or subsidy to pay for food, uh, transportation to get to food, um, ability to store food. If you're homeless, you can't buy uh, a lot of food. You have no place to store it. Um, or if your utilities are off, you know, the, it's the storage of food. And then really fourth, it's the now I have access to food. Now what do I do? Like what right. do I eat? It's the education around um, which is, you know, if we think about it as a Maslow's hierarchy, um, where, you know, we've gotten to the, the highest level of really thinking about, I now have food. Now, what's the best food to actually fuel my body so that I mm-hmm. um, don't get sick, right? Got it. Um, and so, and, and I think that each one of those stages has different solutions for them um, and different approaches. I also believe that it's going to take uh, lots of different partners. And I think that our retail partners are some of the biggest um, entities that could help us in this. Um, mm. You know, obviously, they want people to have access to the food that they're selling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and obviously, some of our largest corporations in this country with some of the largest profit gains tend to be in this, this sphere. And mm-hmm. so how do we help broker between um, what those large retail partners um, are doing and how we how we embed these logistical systems in place not just for the upper middle class or the majority culture, um, but for everyone. Um, and mm. so that's a, that also is a policy bent to it, is how are we advocating um, on behalf of folks um, that may not have internet, um, may not be able to order their groceries online and have them delivered because they right. rely on their stamp or EBT card, right? Um, uh, or don't live in a safe neighborhood where um, a shipped um, shopper would feel comfortable going and delivering groceries. So those are things we continue to try and and, and partner with our local entities um, uh, to help us think through. And then there's this huge food distribution network 
um, through uh, Feeding America and through, you know, our food pantry systems? Um, and how are we really cultivating relationships with our already existing community-based partners to see what they can tell us about their own industry and, and where we fit into that, that solution? So I'm a huge advocate for fitting into existing networks that are already there and figuring out what role CareShore should play in that existing network, not trying to replicate or create some new network um, on our own. Got it. Got it. I love it. I love it. And uh, I'm wondering also, just to follow to that, has the, the like community gardens or kind of like in less than a 30 mile ra- radius, you know, maybe like smaller mm-hmm. uh, depots, uh, you know, I know in my area, there's these Stockwell kind of like uh, convenience stores, like uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> popping up where you just use your app yeah. and you can open those up. And has community gardens come up as a thing that maybe for less than 30 miles and maybe like a, a retail, mm-hmm. uh, a retail grocery store or, and or. Uh, a local hospital helps to subsidize these like, you know, little micro depot areas that uh, yeah. probably just brainstorming geeking out here, but has any of those factors come up at all as potential? Yeah. So we have them happening in a variety of communities, of course, mm. because at, at the very local level, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of effort that's being put into solutioning for, um, food access, as well as healthy foods, as well as getting people outside um, and kind of understanding like the food process, right? Um, one of the things that I wonder, um, and, and I don't have any data on, but it's just something that I wonder about is um, having been a person who spent a lot of time in waiting rooms and trying to maintain my level of subsidies that helped me maintain my level of poverty for a period of time, um, I just wonder if if there aren't notions that in these community gardens, without the proper subsi- subsidy or the proper sustainability mm-hmm. um, in a more formal way, if um, it, it really has been something that very well-intentioned happens in a community and then is turned over to the low-income community in an effort to maintain, and then they're already so tapped out on time, right. <laughs> doing a lot of other things to help them maintain um, the, you know, that this, this doesn't become yet one, that one more thing. Um, and so I, I just wonder sometimes in the, uh, the well-intentioned um, thought around partnering in low-income community is mm-hmm. if the community gardens are something that the low-income community came up with as an idea to solution for their food insecurity, or if it's an idea that comes from the outside brought in, right. Um, right. And, and how then we partner with, um, with those to maintain the sustainability of it. I love it. Yeah, that's such such an important perspective. You know, there's always like the outsider's view of what the right solution is. But if the local community doesn't have that necessary demand, you know, um, all the kale in the world may not solve that problem if it if if the natural. Yeah, well, I'll just be really honest with you. Like I tried to do even just container gardening at my house. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they were the most miserable three tomato plants I'd ever tried to keep alive. <laughs> so, um, and I, I found myself at the grocery store buying tomatoes. So yeah. um, it's hard. And so you, that, I, you know, part of that filter may also be my uh, my own experience with trying to like get my hands in the soil and get out there and and help with organic gardening. And yeah, I just. I'm glad um, that I'm at a point in my life now where I have the financial resources to go to the grocery store. And I guess that's what I would want to have as an option for anyone is that anyone in the United States would be able to have 
an option to garden or an option to just go to the grocery store um, without having to weigh the pros and cons of those two options. Great. Yeah, no, I, that's it's such a great perspective. And I appreciate that. I'm learning so much and I could probably, we could probably geek out a lot, a lot more. And I just yeah. love to pick your brain on so many dimensions, you know, people's needs are, are can spoke out in so many different ways. And what's interesting, it's like this mix of like perception, psychology, mindset, and, and turning the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as you know, with uh, a lot of our episodes, we like to talk about the, the future of health. I'd like to kind of chisel that one of our, you know, our last question here in, in the framing mm-hmm. of, you know, turning the corner. I don't know if that's the right term or if that's, that's a bad term to use, but you know, you've seen so many people probably change their mindsets or something change where it's no longer a poverty situation, but they're in a thriving situation, right? Like they're, they're self-sustaining or, um, um, something change, whether it's internal, external, um, maybe you can tell me about the future, the way the future, you see the future of poverty going in, in relation to what you've seen of like, these transformation stories of what changed with the person internal and external. We talked about a lot of external factors need to change, but what are some of the, what was kind of like the, the, what are those, those bright lights that have to flip on for, for change to happen, maybe on an internal perspective, going from a poverty situation to a non-poverty situation. Yeah. Just just curious. And I know there's probably 20 questions in one. That's that's a great question. (laughs) Um, it's a great question, and and you're right. Um, so in the in the 25 years that I've been, you know, I started as a social worker, and then kind of moved into uh, policy and and nonprofit administration, community development, and and now kind of overseeing, um, you know, large impact types of models. Um, I myself have mentored um, lots of individuals um, as they're they're figuring out what their journey is through. Uh, poverty and what life looks like on the other side, because it's, you know, I, I lived subsidized for four years. Mm -hmm. um, And I still remember leaving a a grocery cart full of groceries at the store when I came off of food stamps, because I hadn't budgeted for food. Like I, and, and even just saying that out loud right now, kind of, I get that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach of what that moment meant. Right. So it's not like you ever get on the other side of it or get over it. It it carries with you, but how do you then turn that into fuel that allows you um, to have impact um, in in different ways? Um, And that uh, I've seen lots of, lots of great, um, you called it the hero's journey or the hero's story, Mm -hmm. um, but just great stories of success um, as people partner. And I think, um, in most of them, um, mm-hmm. and, and even in my own story, the um, the key ingredient um, it has been relationships and connections. And so, right. um, you know, we hear and we're seeing more and more research come out around social isolation and mm-hmm. loneliness. Um, the, there's all if you are not a part of the majority culture, if you're a minority, um, if you are low income, um, if you don't fit whatever the status quo is of whatever environment that you're in, um, uh, isolation becomes even harder to overcome. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, really thinking about how those of us that have networks and have um, means and not just financial means, but, you know, knowledge um, and education and employment connections and and those types of resources and how we reach into our communities in a thoughtful, respectful and dignified way to create diverse relationships, um, 
I think that's got to be part of the key. And if we yeah. were to ever have a turning point, um, I think that, that that how we get back to how we build community, how we intentionally go and introduce ourselves to our neighbors, <laughs> yeah. how we talk to people when we're out walking our dogs, how we not just try and rush through our day on our cell phones or our screens, but actually interact with other human beings mm -hmm. um, in an intentional way, I think will go a long way. Um, yeah. I don't think that this is solely a resource issue. I think we're throwing a lot of money at the issues of poverty, but not in the most effective ways. Right. Um, I think that that relational and that connection context yeah. is missing in so many of, of our lives. Uh, what, No matter how much is in your banking account, it's missing yeah. in so many of our lives. And I think it it is a key... Um, a key way for every single person who's listening to this podcast to decide mm -hmm. that they want to have an impact on right. poverty, on health and well-being, not just for other people, but for themselves. Right, right. Corinna, well, well put and well noted. I mean, I'm right there with you on the relationships piece. I mean, it is all about connection. I mean, but at the core of it, too, it's like through those relations and probably what you experience as well is like, you know, these are people that are, are throwing unconditional love at you and they didn't really know you. Right. And they're just authentically yeah. probably loving you, helping you along the way. Uh, it's, it's almost like, wow, love is, <laughs> love is such a, such an important note. I, I felt that as well too. It's like, you know, so full disclosure, you know, I host this podcast, but it, it is the greatest, cheapest talk therapy method out there, uh, to yeah. be able to share stories and do exactly what we're doing here and just share connections yeah. and, and, and talk about solutions and talk out loud about things and, and, and not go through the workday just transacting through email and you lose sight of what it's all about. It's about connecting relationships and you know, having that love at the core. I went to a men's retreat, full disclosure, uh, you know, through my church like three weeks ago and it was the best, one of the best like connection methods. I, I built so many relationships and it wasn't contingent. You know, I'm out here in Silicon Valley, right? It's not contingent of online mm -hmm, performance yep. or anything like that pressure was off. So it's just, you got to build just great relationships and, and, and help yeah. other people too. And so I appreciate your work, Corinne, and it's powerful stuff you're doing. And I think we're, we're, we're ending this on a really powerful, great note, but, um, before anything else you'd like to add about the future of health, uh, while we're, while we're kind of ending the tail end of the, the episode here. No, I, I think it's just like anything else. Um, as each one of us uh, contribute more, uh, mm -hmm. the more we're going to know. Um, I, mm -hmm. I try to remind myself that medicine and, and the whole healthcare industry is, it, we're still practicing. We're still mm -hmm. learning new things every day as evidenced by the, the key topics these days, right? Um, is we're learning new things about um, ourselves each day. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, uh, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. So I really I appreciate it. the opportunity to share a little bit about myself and the work that I get to do here at CareSource. I love it. I love it. And, and Corinne, very last question promise is if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, uh, you know, through social media or directly, what would be a great way to do so if you'd like that to happen? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I'm very vocal um, about all the advocacy and the work that I do on mm -hmm. uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter mm. um, are all the same kind of um, call name. It's KH Van Zandt. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course you can always reach me through um, all of CareSource's um, social media as well. Super, super. Well, you'll have some good news is you're going to have a lot of listeners reaching out to you. And uh, your story has made a significant impact on me. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to hold me over. I'm not going to get a second cup of coffee this morning. I think this episode for me and hearing your story and your work is going to charge me up for the next 48 hours at least. <laughs> so uh, it's great work you're doing. Really appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, don't keep, keep not holding back. 
uh, in what you're doing. And uh, this was this was great. And to our listeners out there, this is the Pop Health Show. The show is for anyone that has a super strong passion for making other people healthier in this world. Corinne, thank you so much for doing this and for peeling off time to do this. I uh, really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you.